Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. So it's my very special honor to welcome my guest, Rob Verchik. Is that correct? Is that spelling? That's it. The pronunciation, great. And it's for two reasons uh, that you're such a special guest. Uh, one is due to the fact that this is the inaugural podcast of uh, the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America. Uh, not my regular one, which is new books in psychology, but I'm also doing something with them. And so that I chose your book because I, I've just, uh, I'm in love with this book. I think it's, it's wonderful in all of the things, all in all of the things that can be said too. It's also wonderful. And I'll ask you about this later, but you don't talk just about the negative things about climate change. You also talk about really positive things. So uh, let me introduce you. Um, I'll, first of all, I'll mention something that's very new. And you've just been uh, awarded or selected to be, uh, I believe it's a fellow of the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, and you'll be working on oceans. Is that correct? That's right. Oceans and coasts. Yeah. Oceans and coasts. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. Okay. That sounds very interesting. Maybe we'll have time to get into that a little bit. Um, if not, then we could maybe go back again. Um, I'll say a little bit more about the rest of the things that you do. You're a climate law scholar who designed climate resilient policies for the Obama administration. I was very excited when I saw that. You also teach at Loyola University and also Tulane. And I think at Loyola, you um, hold uh, an endowed chair. And you also are affiliated with, I don't know if you are a founder, but affiliated with, for, for sure, the Center for Progressive Reform, and you, where you work with scholars to help communities become more resilient and just. I like the just part. Resilient, too, but people don't often put those two together, or I haven't heard them put together. Um, you also interview legal, legal experts, researchers, and community members on issues that impact you, your family, and your community. And I like this part. Each session untangles themes related to climate adaptation, energy justice, workers' rights, and public health, plus more. But the untangling something in in every podcast, I really did like that, even if you don't untangle the whole thing, but a piece of it anyway. So, okay, questions. 
a major part of your work has to do with climate resi resiliency. I think that's a good lead into my first question. So this is something that seems really important in your writing. It, obviously, you could have chosen a lot of different things to focus on, like some other aspect of climate change or global warming, but climate resiliency seems important. So can you say a little bit about this concept? Sure. And um, I, I first, you know, really developed, I guess, a passion for this idea about resilience um, here in New Orleans, which is which is, of course, where I am right now. And um, I, I moved to New Orleans nine months before Hurricane Katrina hit with all the floods. And like everyone else, you know, I had a house underwater and, you know, kids who are having to go to school in other states and and all of that. And um, and what I started to realize is that this idea about resilience and uh, and being prepared uh, for disasters of all kinds, but particularly for for climate related uh, impacts was something was super important. And so we, we talk about it a lot more than we used to. It used to be uh, a lot of environmentalists didn't want to talk so much about preparing for climate change because they thought that it would um, it would dissuade people from being interested in actually trying to cut carbon pollution, which, of course, we have to do, too. Um, as I talk about resilience, uh, I mean uh, for a community uh, to become, uh, to be able to absorb um, serious impacts from climate and then to build back better and to build back stronger and in smarter ways. Um, it's a little bit, uh, I think, uh, maybe it, it, it's, it's a little bit like psychological resilience, emotional resilience, you know, in people's own lives uh, that, you know, maybe they come out of a, maybe they lost a job or they come out of a breakup or whatever it is. And, and they might think that what they want is just to be back the way they were. But in fact, that's usually not what the work is, right? Usually the work is trying to figure out how to move, of course, through something that's been difficult, but then how to come back and be more resilient, more robust, smarter about things, and maybe have a little more insight uh, about your own situation. And um, and I think that's what we in society should be aiming uh, for as well. Um, the, the other, you know, sometimes I'm asked, well, what, why, uh, you know, is that not just throwing in the towel? And I think that the answer for that is that um, the climate is already uh, impacting us in very serious ways, almost anywhere on the planet. Um, and we could shut off fossil fuel consumption today. Uh, and we would still have about 100 years or more of climate heating um, baked into the system for a variety of, of science, you know, sort of scientific, uh, physical reasons. And so there are people who are suffering right now. It's not going to get better, uh, until it gets worse. And, uh, we have to be able to avoid the impacts that we can't manage. That's what cutting carbon pollution is all about. But then we also have to be able to manage the impacts that we are not going to be able to avoid. Yeah. Well, that's all very important. Um, moving on, uh, while we're on this topic, uh, tell me about, the, uh, this is a mouthful, the most sophisticated ecosystem climate change resiliency project in the world that's been going on for years that many people don't know about. This could be a quiz question. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, it's actually happening in my in, in my backyard in southern in southern Louisiana, and and it, it's not described or talked about so much as a climate resilience project, but that's exactly what it is. Um, a lot of people don't know that Louisiana is uh, home to uh, the largest contiguous coastal wetlands um, in the lower 48 in the continental United States. And uh, those wetlands uh, are enormously important. They're worth trillions of dollars in natural services from storm protection to supporting fisheries, to supporting the energy uh, industry and, and all kinds of things like that. And um, in the last uh, 70 years, we've lost 2,000 square miles of, of wetlands. And that's because of subsidence, oil and gas development, levee system uh, decisions. Um, but uh, climate change, of course, sea level rise is making that a lot worse. We've uh, Sea levels here, where I am, have risen eight inches since Hurricane Katrina, uh, if you think about that. And... Um, so we can't afford to lose those wetlands, or at least a lot of them. And so uh, since the, you know, around 2009, the state has been planning and putting together a project called the Coastal Master Plan, uh, which over 50 years um, would rebuild and restore um, a significant amount of those wetlands. It would cost between 50 and $100 billion. We're about, we've found about $10 billion, and we've got... Uh, coastal restoration projects going on all over uh, Southern Louisiana. Many deltas in the world have the exact same problem for a variety of reasons. And so everybody's watching us uh, to, to figure out if we can do it and how to do it. We've got NASA scientists down here. We've of course got the Army Corps of Engineers. We've got uh, engineers from the Netherlands. Everybody is down here uh, studying not just the physics of it, but also the legal and the policy angles. Uh, of all of this. And uh, we renew this plan every five years uh, and no decision for coastal use is made without going through this um, with, with going through this, this process. Um, I'll just say one of the, the, the really big kind of innovations is um, we are experimenting with uh, diverting freshwater and sediment from the Mississippi river and other major rivers um, to flood targeted areas um, that would then uh, restore the freshwater balance in these areas and then bring in new uh, sediment, new uh, silt, right? And and build back uh, build back our wetlands in, in a quasi-natural way. Well, that sounds like that's important work. And I know people say those kinds of things all the time, but this, to me, this says, it's not too late. There, there is a lot that people could still do, which really did come across in your book. Um, so I'll ask you more about that in a few minutes, but sure. that does seem like there's something that you're doing about this, which is obviously that's the whole point of all of these things. Well, I'll add one, I'll add one thing to that sure. about the coastal restoration. Um, everything is complicated, okay? And so one of the complications is that um, because of sea level rise happening faster than we thought it it would, um, and when I say that, I mean based on 2009 numbers, um, what we're finding is that uh, we are, even as we restore the wetlands, we're, of course, losing wetlands at the same time. 
And um, we're going to be in a situation where we're actually not going to be able to uh, get to no net loss. We will be losing wetlands as we go, just not as quickly. And what that means is what we're doing is we're buying time. Maybe we're buying time so that we can cut carbon pollution. Maybe we're buying time so that we have more, more years, uh, more generations in this area. But it doesn't mean that we will ever completely fix that problem down here. And that that raises a kind of an interesting, you know, again, an interesting psychological and, and emotional issue, which is um, here we are working for something very, very hard. Um, but the outcome is always uncertain. And, and the outcome is never perfection. It's just something better, right? You know, managing and getting something better. Well, that's obviously important. That's all we can do, I think, is something better. <laughs> I think we need you to come back to Washington. <laughs> um, I know you worked on policy change in, in the Obama administration, but I, I think maybe we need it again. That's a whole different topic. That's a different podcast. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm going to jump into deeper water here. Sure. You mentioned that FEMA helps white Americans more than people of color. Can, can you say more about that? Yeah, and I want to be really careful and, and precise about what what um, what my findings show. These aren't my findings. These are findings of other uh uh, of geographers and sociologists, uh, namely uh, uh, a friend of mine, A.R. Siders, who's at the University of Delaware, who's done a lot of this work. Um, and what what she originally uh, set out to, to learn was um, how FEMA administers voluntary buyouts. Those are the programs in which uh, there might be areas in, uh, uh, in a community that once they flooded, because they flooded so many times, um, it makes sense uh, from a policy point of view, to encourage people to move to other places, right? And, and uh, of course, they can't afford to do that always on their own. And so sometimes there's money made available uh, where FEMA will buy or pay for a whole neighborhood to, to move, essentially, right? And acquire property somewhere else. And as you can imagine, that's, you know, that's controversial in, in a number of ways. Um, what, uh, what the AR Siders found uh, in looking at all of the data nationally having to do with voluntary buyouts, is that um, race actually played a, uh, a a pretty large role in terms of describing what the outcomes were. Uh, in other words, communities that wanted buyouts, because some communities do, right? They're just like, let's let's all you know move. We need we need some help, some federal help. Communities that wanted buyouts were often uh, the ones that were successful uh, were were uh, disproportionately white, uh, and in communities that didn't necessarily want buyouts, because you can imagine the opposite, right? Um, where people would rather say, "Well, I want to stick it out," or "I'd rather, uh, you know, build uh, some protective measures in the communities," um, that there there seemed to be less agency. Um, in making those decisions, again, based on race. And so it's not as if FEMA or anyone at FEMA, who they're, they're wonderful people, very innovative, and they want to help. It's not like they're setting out to do this. But I think that what's happening is that you've got communities, uh, you know, to be able to get a buyout program uh, requires a, a certain amount of, of, of political um, clout. 
it, it assumes a certain amount of, uh, of of ability to get the right politicians involved um, and to and, and to get somebody's ear. And I think that that's probably more than anything what explains it. Uh, another issue, which which is also really important, is um, a, a lot of recovery. Uh, first of all, we we just know empirically that recovery from disaster happens much more slowly in poor communities and communities of color. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons you could probably imagine uh, for that, you know, including people's uh, savings that they have and so on. Um, but but uh, another thing that often happens is this money comes to states in these uh, community development block grants. It comes from FEMA or it comes from HUD or other places. Uh, and it's basically up to the state to put together programs that will uh, help people recover. And uh, these programs are, are generally middle class programs, meaning that they mainly help, they're designed to help uh, owners, homeowners uh, of a particular, uh, you know, of, of a particular economic profile. And, uh, and they're often based on housing values, which are themselves based on, um, on, on, uh, uh, you know, racialized, uh, uh, racialized features in, in a housing market. Um, and so what we tend to see in programs like this is that they, again, don't help the, the, the most disadvantaged communities as much as they help um, homeowners, you know, as opposed to renters, let's say. Um, and so all of these have these racialized effects, again, not, you know, making the claim that any of it is, is, is what people mean to do, uh, but it happens. And the reason it happens is because, at least in my view, we don't think enough on the front end about what our designs will actually do, given the demographics and the, and, and the experiences of people who live in the communities. Well, that's helpful. I'm glad you cleared up or um, explained more about FEMA, because obviously they're good people, but mm -hmm. I guess it's a system, problem with the system. Well, you know, and they're working on it. I mean, I have uh, I have uh, some former students who are in D.C. working at FEMA right now, actually. And, and but it, it actually is very difficult. Right. To, uh, you know, one of just uh, just a quick example is uh, you've got these uh, Biden initiatives, the Inflation Reduction Act and the and the bipartisan um, infrastructure bill um, sending billions of dollars, uh, almost 50 billion dollars just for climate resilience. Uh, and uh, the president, to his credit, has said that 40 percent of the benefits uh, of those programs must go to what he calls disadvantaged communities. Um, so there are problems. I mean, you, you can imagine you know, how do you how do you measure 40 percent of a benefit? And then how do you define what a disadvantaged community are? Those are uh, those are problems and they're working on them. But but another issue is that a lot of the communities that that would qualify as disadvantaged um, don't have the capacity to organize and develop um, competition-winning uh, proposals uh, for the grant money. And you know, it's I see this here in Louisiana. I mean, there are particular parishes in Louisiana that are really good at coming up with grant money and packaging, or you know, packaging their proposals together and linking them in the right way. Um, and those are generally parishes, I think, that have more uh, uh, that, that that have more wealth. And, and, and so that's a problem in the Biden administration. I mean, they're fixed, they're working on it. Um, but uh, with people I talk to at FEMA and, and HUD and elsewhere at EPA, 
um, they say, you know, it's really hard because we want this money to go to disadvantaged communities, but they, by definition, uh, don't necessarily have the resources to apply for it. Here's a question that is related. The topic is similar, but uh, I'm just shifting a little bit. And I really, I like, I think it's very provocative and very meaningful. I really like the title of your book, The Octopus in the Parking Garage. Um, I'm interested in knowing how your book ties in or the themes in your book tie in with uh, poverty and climate change specifically. Um, I know that in this particular parking garage, it's located in an affluent part of Miami, but there's certainly other areas of the greater Miami region where money's a problem. Can you say something about this disparity and you know the things that people with money will be able to have done versus people who don't have it? Oh sure, yeah, and I'm I'm glad you like the title um, of of the book. It, um, it it comes from this story, as you say. There was a, a a rather fancy condominium complex on Biscayne Bay in Miami with a accompanying staged parking garage. And uh, for reasons having to do with sea level rise and some extreme tides, the the stormwater uh, pipe system uh, backed up. And instead of the water flowing out of the garage, it went the other way and an octopus showed up um, and, and was rescued. And I, from what I understand, was just fine. Um, and I chose that story in a way not to sound sort of as dangerous. I, I didn't want to scare people. And so I thought that that might be a way to get people thinking about the issue without necessarily, um, you know, feeling like it was somebody's house had been burned to the ground or something like that. Uh, but but you're exactly right that um, that the moneyed class in Miami is is going to be okay, right? They're either going to be able to build walls or they're going to be able to raise that is to elevate some of their houses um, or uh, or move. Right. And, and, and the people um, who are most at risk are, are people who are exposed in other ways. So a lot of areas, not surprising, a lot of flood zones are areas where the land is 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 uh, less valuable uh, and uh, and people are living there either because they can't afford to live other places or because of uh, uh, racialized housing markets over time have have pushed people in certain areas. Um, so they're more exposed and they're less resilient, meaning that, you know, if if uh, they might not have insurance um, or their um, their insurance uh, rates might be going up to, in, in, in ways that they can't afford. And so their property is essentially becoming value less. If it can't be insured, no one's going to want to buy it. And um, and so, yeah, these are these are, you know, big issues that we're seeing in in communities and uh what I worry about, and you can see this even at a national level, is that the states that have more money are are getting more done with it. You know, uh, in on Manhattan, um, people are worried about sea level rise in the Wall Street area and the Battery, and uh, the city is planning to build an enormous U-shaped uh, seawall to protect it. Uh, Houston is is thinking about building an enormous seawall to protect it. Um, 
But there are other communities in southern Louisiana. There are a lot of communities um, that are not protected by a levy system and never will be. And and their uh, their choices are going to be to leave, you know, at some point. And a lot of these communities are African-American communities. They're uh, Asian-American uh, community, Vietnamese-American communities. Um, they're uh uh, you know, poor uh, uh, Cajun communities. Um, and, and, and so, it, you know, it is, it's really tough. And this happens, I'll just mention, this is also true in, in the interior of the United States too. I mean, we have a lot of river floods. St. Louis floods a lot. Um, uh, uh, Des Moines floods a lot. And, uh, and the areas that are most prone to flooding are generally areas that are that have less wealth. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense uh, that it's not just the coastal areas, yeah. but it's the interior as well, or part of the country. Um, now I really got to shift gears, uh, <laughs> moving back in time, like way, way, way back. I, I noticed in your book that, or I was struck by the fact that you seem to visit the Natural History Museum quite a bit. And in particular, our ancestor, Lucy. Uh, what does Lucy have to tell us about climate change and adaptation? Yeah, it is. This is a chapter people uh, uh, talk a lot about in, in my discussions so far I've had on the book. Uh, so when I was working in the Obama administration, I loved to go to the Smithsonian weekends, and I went to the National History Museum. And if you go there, there's a wonderful exhibit called the the uh, Hall of Origins, which is a um, an exhibit about um, humans, the evolution of of the human species, um, and 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 one of the lessons of that that's built into that exhibit is that uh, human evolution uh, went hand in hand with uh, an oscillating climate. Uh, and uh, and that seemed to me very interesting because I often, and I think when we talk about climate change with, with other people, sometimes people will say, oh, well, the climate's always been changing, which is exactly true. Um, but there's an answer, right? Yes, the climate has always been changing, but it is suddenly a problem because what we're seeing is is happening much, much faster. So as it turns out, the climate, you know, oscillates uh, in a particular way and has for the last six million years or so. It's related to a kind of a wobbling of the earth and scientists completely understand that. We predict it. Um, that doesn't explain what's going on now in terms of climate change, but it it did over 6 million years have an effect on how people, uh, human beings um, adapted in a genetic way. So Lucy, you know, was about 3 million years old. The, the paleontologists call her an australopith. And uh, she's she's one of the species that went from the trees to the ground and was able to do, you know, quite a few different things in different kinds of uh, environments. And um, as you look, the, we've had the most climate oscillation in the last million years, and that happens to be when uh, humans and pre-humans um, developed, you know, learned to walk upright, learned that their their brains expanded very rapidly over those million years. We got language, we got culture, all of these things, and it helped us basically populate the whole planet because we could we weren't the best at any one thing, but we were pretty good at being in the cold and being in the heat and finding food and all of those kinds of things. Um, so what do we learn from that? What does that teach us? Well, you know, what I think it teaches us is that uh, first, we don't have the time they did. 
They did that in thousands of generations, and we have seen a foot of sea level rise in the last century, right? And it's just going to keep going. Um, but what we have inherited from Lucy and others is we have inherited a big brain that's good at planning and a, a lot of ways to cooperate. Those are the things that saved us as a species for 6 million years, a uh, big brain and planning and the ability to cooperate. And, and uh, skeptics are going to say, well, it was the big brain and cooperation that got us in this mess, which is true because that led to drilling oil and all of those things, industrialism. Uh, but we, we also have the tools to get out of this thing. And, and I think the tools to get out or, you know, to move the needle on climate change is that we have to be adaptive and we have to be social. Um, that's how we solve problems. Did I do a good job uh, summarizing 6 million years of, of <laughs> human history? <laughs> Absolutely. And I really did get the sense that you really like visiting Lucy. Oh, I do. Yeah. I, I'm a, uh, I, have to, I have to go visit Lucy too. Yeah, you do. You have to go. Yeah. Um, okay. So I try to come up with questions. There's so much. Honestly, this could be a course, not just a podcast or two or 10. There's so much in your book. It's so rich. Uh, so I try to select things that, um, well, I was interested in, but I'm interested in it all. So I do the best I could with uh, things that people would be interested in as well. Uh, Tell us about Climate Cast and Cancer Alley. That's a, um, a, a, an earlier chapter in the book where I was trying to sort of set a foundation for what we were going to be talking about. And, and I think it's really important. Um, and throughout the book, I tried to do this, to talk about not just the physical exposure part of adapting to climate change, but to talk about the the what what's what the ge geographers call social vulnerability that is our economic and our social means to recover and endure disasters to recover from disasters and, and endure them when they happen um the the, the um underserved overburdened communities um always get the worst of disasters related to climate and weather too um and those communities uh the the, the um, identifiers that we, that we have in the literature that sh that show that are related to to that uh, harder experience is race, ethnicity, language, uh, language isolation in the United States, gender, sexual orientation, age, uh, disability. Uh, many of these things, right? If you knew them ahead of time about a community, you would say that's the community that's going to have the hardest time, and that's true in uh, across the planet too. Um, and so I think that if we're really talking about uh, developing resilience, we have to focus um, and pay special attention to those communities. Because if the if if the idea is that what we want is from our policy is to reduce harm and to reduce risk, one of the ways you can do that is by taking away those social inequalities that that make it so much harder for people to endure and recover. Um, you know, there's one, one uh, you, you find this, once you start looking, you find it everywhere, but a, a, a review in the journal Climate, for instance, found that that redlining of minority communities um, in, in more than 100 American cities uh, resulted in heavier burdens on residents from extreme heat. 
you know, so you think about, so we got 700 people who die in heat waves every year. It's the largest, uh, uh, it, 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 it's the most dangerous, if you will, sort of natural disaster that we face. Um, 700 people a year die, thousands are harmed and injured, um, and they're disproportionately people of color. Uh, and that has to do with the jobs they, they have, uh, whether it's outdoor workers, or it has to do with the neighborhoods uh, often that they live in, or their access to um, to electricity, right, and air conditioning and things like that. Um, so Cancer Alley is uh, is a name given to a um, set of communities down here in southern Louisiana, uh, which has a, a much higher than normal uh, cancer rate, as it turns out, highest in the nation, depending how it's measured. And um, it's also the it, it's it's a stretch along the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. Um, that houses uh, chemical plants. Uh, it's it's largest concentration of chemical plants, one one of the largest concentrations in the world. Um, and so I, I visit there, and my students visit there too. Uh, we work sometimes with communities there. Uh, I mention a an activist named Sharon Levine, um, whom I've known for years. Uh, she's a retired school teacher, and uh, she is an internationally known. Uh, um, environmental activists now, and 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 she lives in Cancer Alley, and and she has organized uh, repeatedly uh, various uh, projects to 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 sort of make that area safer because there's a lot of air pollution and other things that are happening there. Uh, but one of the things that I focus that I write about after Hurricane Ida, uh, which which hit that area. I, I went down and, and visited Sharon and, and helped with some of the groups that she was arranging, you know, loading ice and food and things like that. And um, and what I learned and what she was telling me was she was tracking where these chemical discharges uh, that were vented out of these facilities um, because they had lost power and because they didn't have a plan for when they lost power, other than to just vent these chemicals, which otherwise would, would lead to explosions. And so there were 170 different discharges that EPA have in their reports. This is ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, gasoline, vapor, all going into the air, uh, completely unregulated, unmonitored. Um, and you know, when people breathe this stuff, you um, you go to the hospital. I mean, it is it, it is not a it is a chronic issue, but it is an acute issue. And um, and folks in these communities, uh, you know, live like this continually and um and it's really important that facilities have better storm plans and flood plans because these problems are just going to get worse and it, it realized yeah i started to think about this and i'm like well of course this is an environmental problem people can see that but it's also a climate problem uh because this is just going to get worse and worse and people like Sharon know that. I mean, we you know we talk a lot about that and we talk, you know, every facility is supposed to have a flood plan, but their flood plans don't take into consideration um, the new rain patterns that we're going to see and are seeing because of climate change. And so they're preparing for a world that, you know, existed 30 years ago. They're not preparing for a world that exists now uh, and, and will get worse. And that's something that I think we, our big brains that are so good at planning, that's something we should be able to figure out. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say about the book in general is that you may have been writing it so that you were building on foundations, 
or that you lay the foundations and then the second floor, so to speak, or the third floor. Mm, yeah. But I found it to be a book you could pick up and, and start with any chapter and learn a lot. And if you didn't read the previous chapter, um, that was okay. So it's- Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. They're self-contained in each chapter. That's why after I read the book, I, I went through it and I didn't go sequentially. I just found a chapter where I knew I was interested in something, where I marked and I put a paper clip in, and then I went back to it. And it didn't have to be from the beginning. So I think that's somewhat unique. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. Uh, this comes towards the end. Uh, I found your LTD, uh, Learn, Talk, and Do, to be very psychoanalytic, which I mentioned when we first started talking. Yeah, to yeah. Before we started the podcast. Um, as a psychologist and psychotherapist, one thing that I say to patients every week or a couple of times a week, I say this to someone, how important it is to talk about things that are going on, that are bothering them. Uh, I might not say it the same way, but the idea is learn about yourself, talk about it, and then together we can learn to figure some way out to do something that can help the situation or help you understand it a little bit more. It sounds it sounds very much the same, although it's mm. a different field. Have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I was so glad that you raised this because um, I, I didn't intend, <laughs> obviously, uh, for it to reflect that. But um, so many of the discussions that I have with people uh, push me in that direction. I, I, I mentioned to you earlier before we uh, went on air um, that my wife is a, is a counselor, and and I, I'm sure some of that. And I've raised three kids, so I, I, I'm sure I, I'm sure some of it comes from that. But it it it, it I, I think basically this is what it amounts to: um, climate change. Whether we're talking about reducing pollution, the carbon pollution, or whether we're building resilience. Um, it is at this point mainly a collective action problem. Um, yeah, you know, we could certainly use you know, newer technologies, and we will. But this is not a technological problem anymore. It's not even an economic problem. It's not even that because we could, we have the technology uh, to do things in cost-effective ways um, that, that could really, really change things. Uh, but we have a collective action problem, and. Uh, and that's a social problem, of course. And, um, and, and so that's where I think the social science um, and, uh, and the science about our brains and emotions, I think, can really help. Uh, I was struck, for instance, uh, uh, there are researchers at Yale who, who have done these uh, longitudinal studies uh, about uh, uh, people's, um, uh, people's viewpoints about climate change over the years. Um, and they find recently 60% of, of Americans, 60% are concerned or alarmed about climate change, which is big, right? I mean, that's well over, you know, that's, that's, that's well the majority. Um, they also find that most of those people don't know what to do about the problem in any practical way. And most of those people, if you can believe it, even the alarmed ones, most of them say they don't talk to other people about it, even people who would be sympathetic uh, to their to their fears. Um, and I think that there is an isolation that's happening 
either because of anxiety uh, or I think actually politically, uh, I think industry has actually pushed us to isolate in some ways too, in the sense that the message I think that we often get from industry is, oh, well, it's it's the individual's problem. Uh, It's up to you to buy the right light bulb, uh, to invest in a Tesla uh, or not not to fly on a plane. It's it's your job. And uh, the economy is just going to go on the way it's always gone on. Everything else is just going to go on the way it's all the politics is going to be the same way. Um, and all of a sudden, it's just you. And 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 the, what I'm trying to break through is that it's actually we. And so I think part of what you're talking about is this idea about processing, talking uh, with people as a way that you process things, the way that you can normalize situations that seem very abnormal uh, and, 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 uh, and provide context. And the other thing about communication or just talking really is about learning and organizing. You know, that is how we learn. We learn from each other. Um, that's how we get things done in groups uh, by talking. And so if if we can find out that other people feel similarly and that other people have the same concerns, then we can join together and and build a coalition, either that's social or that's political or that's economic. Um, and, and so I, 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 it, talking leads to action, it seems to me. Uh, I hope, uh, maybe uh, maybe not always, but uh, the kind of talking I like is the talking that leads to action. And and action is what gets us out of our shell and, and moves us beyond just being anxious. Yeah, that reminds me of one thing that I think is so important to Americans. I, I've given some workshops with a, with a friend of mine. I do the climate part and she does the sense of loss of the community. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it's very interesting. I mean, I think this is no news. I think Americans in general, many of them feel a loss of that sense of community. It's not like we go to the neighbors and everybody comes over and we all have a wonderful barbecue and it's, you know, there are differences of opinions and this and that. That seems to have it seems to have faded away, at yes. least yeah. as I know it. So I think it's very interesting. I think the thing you're also talking about is community building. Yeah. 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 Because in that. You don't want to feel lonely. When you feel lonely, you yeah. you just spiral down, right? Right. Absolutely. So to follow up on that, what can the average person do? We know they can try to get involved in a sense of community, build a community, join one what what else? How else do you well, see? Well, one of the things, and I, I write about this in, in the book, which is a re, one of the things that's appealing to me about the resilience movement, okay, is that um, it's very open to many different interests um, because it, 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 at bottom, what climate resilience is about is thinking about whatever it is that you do or whatever it is that you're interested in and thinking about how climate impacts might make that harder. And, and it's almost certain you will find something. <laughs> you will, you'll, you'll come up with things. Maybe you like to fish and hunt, or maybe your concern is, uh, is children and playgrounds or maybe and, and children's health, or maybe your, your concern is snow skiing, or maybe your concern is gardening or you know the, the food that you can buy in season or whatever it is. 
almost anything you think about is going to be related, is going to change because of climate. And so then you can say, okay, here's the thing I'm already interested in. What is it um, that climate might make harder? And then what is it that I can do about it? And chances are, I mean, it doesn't mean joining a climate club necessarily, right? It might be part of your gardening club. Or it might be part of your buddies going fishing or bird watching. Um, you're already in some kind of community, and your community is going to be affected in some way. And so it, it's it's not about like, oh, I'm not interested in astrophysics or or atmospheric physics, so I need to learn about a, 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 you know physics. No, you don't. You just have to learn about the thing you already know about, but learn about how this new thing. Uh, about how this new issue may happen. And one of the things I do in my book is I, I interview a lot of people and, uh, and I tried to interview people that, um, that were making a difference, but that, uh, but that seemed very accessible, you know? So I interview a, a, a woman uh, uh, named Wendy Gao, who at the time was a high school student in Virginia. And she was trying to get her school district to save money. Uh, right. And and came up with the idea after they're doing a lot of research that if they put solar panels on the roofs of all the schools in the district, um, they could they could end up saving money. And and she led a group to do that student led and every every school in her school district now has solar panels on top and they're paying for themselves. Um, I interview a, a girl uh, named named Karen Norman, who's now in high school, but at the time was uh, finishing middle school, she liked to scuba dive. And now she is doing um, uh, scientific research at her age, uh, you know, peer review studies on on replacing coral and restoring coral. And um, so you never know, you know, it could be almost any, you know, I, I interview uh, a, another woman from where I grew up in, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Her name is Cynthia Zermenio Moore. She grew up in a neighborhood very close to the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, her neighborhood's primarily Latino, uh, not a lot of wealth, um, and uh, and they have a lot of air pollution. And some of it is caused by wildfires uh, that are climate uh, that are related to climate change. And she got involved because she has a young son who has allergies and and who can't go outside when it's uh, when there's a lot of soot and smoke in the air. So you know whatever it is, uh, you can start looking into it and say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna learn more about that. If it's still interesting to me, I'm gonna keep going. If it's not interesting, change, you know, uh, and and find something else <laughs> that you're gonna work on. <laughs> it all makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, I, I, absolutely. On the topic of coral. Um, I have other questions, but sure, yeah, I have yeah. hard to place in the in your book, and I'm just going to read a sentence uh, and ask you a couple of questions. Uh, and it is as follows: Unfortunately, coral, the Eden of the octopus, and the reef fish alike are in sharp decline in the United States and around the world. Uh, the question has to do with Key Largo. I grew up in the Keys, and I know that you oh were gosh. in Key Largo. Yeah to uh i think scuba dive and and yeah. look at the coral uh could you say more about that yeah you know what i'm going to be in miami tomorrow actually at a at a bookstore called books and books which you may know uh there, there there's one in key west and there's one in uh, coral gables uh, but uh so about coral <laughs> 
So uh, yeah, coral is is endangered around the world. Part of it has to do with climate change because of these ocean heat waves that lead to uh, bleaching of coral, which can lead to the to the mass killing of coral. Um, Twenty five percent of all of our seafood that we eat um, is relies in some part on the ecosystems that coral reefs provide. So it's it, it, it's very very important. Um, in uh, as you as you know. Uh, there's some extraordinary coral reefs uh, in the Keys and around Florida, and and they're all very much in danger. Um, part of that has to do with with climate, but it also has to do with other decisions that are made. Uh, you know, the 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 pushing of pollution from the land, uh, decisions made about tourism and fishing, um, and and these kinds of things. And 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 one of the themes in the book that 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 ends up being highlighted in thinking about coral is we, we can't cool the ocean, not in any reliable, cost-effective way. So what we have to do is take away the other stressors, right? So I was, in, in the last last spring, I actually was lucky enough to, uh, I had a sabbatical and I spent it on a marine station in French Polynesia. Uh, French Polynesia has some of the most beautiful coral in existence right now. Um, and they have ocean heat waves and they have coral bleaching, but when their coral bleaches, it has a chance to revive. Uh, and that is because they have relatively fewer stressors. Um, they don't have a lot of overfishing. Um, they don't have a lot of pollution because, well, they have some, but you know, they, they, the limited number of people living on the islands. Um, but the lesson there is that things can bounce back if we make room for them to. And uh, what uh, Kara Norman and others were doing uh, off the coast of Key Largo and other places is, uh, is they're experimenting with, um, uh, with replanting coral, that is growing coral in offshore nurseries, which I visited. Some of the largest offshore nurseries in the world are off of Key Largo, where they're growing small bits of coral small fingers of coral like like in a nurse well it is a nursery it's uh you know acres and acres and they and they grow certain types of coral that are thought to be uh robust um and, and do well in different kinds of temperatures and then they take those coral fingers and they by hand uh epoxy them onto dying reefs uh, and they have thousands of thousands of volunteers uh, who are working around the keys who do this they're doing it in french polynesia um, they're doing it in hawaii uh, you know off of off of various islands in hawaii um, and it's it's something that's getting people involved it's not going to solve the problem by itself but it's part of a solution um, and uh, you know what i say in the book and this is a, this is a, a very scary thing we don't know whether we're going to have wild coral in 30 years from now. Uh, if we don't cut down on our carbon pollution, coral might not have a chance. And 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 that would be just a tremendous tragedy in, in so many ways. Um, uh, and so we've got to work to, to make sure that doesn't happen. Yes, actually, that reminds me of a workshop that I mentioned that I've done on the loss in the morning that mm -hmm. people are going through. And uh, several years ago, I don't think people were talking about it as much. I yeah. planned a conference for therapists a couple of years ago, and it was amazing. They they were saying 
that people are now beginning to talk about it. So let's say two years, two years ago, and they don't really have, they didn't have the answers. They were searching for ways to help people process the loss. If a species of um, butterflies disappears, it's gone. Yeah. I mean, it's like the death of a person. And um, I think we're just learning this in, in uh, psychoanalysis, psychotherapy, counseling. We're learning techniques, but it's not something people learned in school, at least for the most part, unless they just graduated from some program. Well, you know, it, it's really interesting to hear you you say that because, you know, in, in Southern Louisiana, um, there are large areas of land that, that are open water now, but that, that weren't maybe two generations ago. And, um, you know, you can, you can go out into those communities, talk to people, and they'll point to open water and say, that's where my grandfather's buried, right? Mm -hmm. Because literally, you know, cemeteries underwater um, or, or other sort of major um, uh, landmarks. And, um, and, you know, that is, uh, that, that is something that, that I think more Americans are going to start experiencing. Now, I, I write a little bit about some of the indigenous populations uh, down in Louisiana. And that's a story that many indigenous populations have, have had for years, right? I mean, I grew up in Las Vegas, and um, Lake Mead, you know, is, a, is the result of a dam. Uh, that, of course, flooded uh, a large area where there were lots of um, uh, indigenous uh, communities and, and, and uh, artifacts, and all of that went underwater. And, and a lot of people didn't think much about it. But of course, the indigenous populations thought a lot about that. And, um, and so now we're, I think more and more people are going to be experiencing those kinds of things. That reminds me of a podcast I did with Sally Weintraub. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a psychoanalyst in the mm. UK. She's very involved in climate. And she talked about in, in her book, Indi Indigenous People, and how we could learn so much from them if we'd only listen. Mm. We don't mm -hmm. ask and listen. There's, right. there's so much to learn. Well, we yeah. found uh, a, a group of researchers and I, we were interested in... Um, in relocation issues, which I, I'd mentioned earlier. And we were particularly interested in communities that were trying to relocate as one, right, as, a, as an entire community. Um, and we found that there were, depending how you count it, there were maybe 15, 16 communities that fit that description that, that, were, that were wanting to leave as a whole on account of climate change. And um, so there were 15 or so communities. Every one of them was an indigenous community. Um, they were all on coasts too, actually. But you know, most of them were in, in um, Alaska, some in Washington State, and then we have a community uh, on an island in southern Louisiana um, that's uh, part of the Ile de, de Jean Charles tribe. Um, yeah, and it, it's a uh, um, you know it, it makes you think a lot about. Uh, the struggles um, that indigenous people have had. Yeah, there's so much of that. There's loss and there's also, it seems like you're saying, a sense of community that they have. They want to go together. They don't want to go one by one. 
Yes, and and of course, it, the, people are going one by one. That's the other story, right? That's the story that you see in rural America. It's the story you see on Indian reservations um, and other places where people are just gradually trickling out. And then at some point, you say, oh, well, you know, everybody's migrated away. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, one of the issues uh, with climate change is this happens all very suddenly. And so, you know, within... Within this century, the federal government believes that something like 12 million people will migrate from the coasts on account of climate change. And um, that's 12 million people in a, in just a short period of time. And where are they all going to go, right? They're going to, the demographers, the geographers are saying, well, they're going to go to places like Austin and Las Vegas and Orlando. Uh, and I'll tell you, those cities have no idea what's coming because they, you know, they, these are places that are already growing by leaps and bounds, and they're just going to have more to do. And and that's why we need more planning, right? More planning right now uh, for those kinds of things. Well, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I was going to ask you about, I think you've answered most of these questions, but I was going to ask you about the rise in the sea level. Yeah. It, it was a, approximately 10 to 12 inches in over a hundred year period. Now it could increase the same amount in 30 years in 30 years yeah There's, mm -hmm. you also mentioned something about if in worst case scenario it could the surface could be up to eight feet and yeah i mean that obviously terrible news so in terms of well this is i mean multi multifaceted but in terms of losing shoreline i mean these these people live on the shoreline and the, the number you mentioned, the millions, it, I, I think you say in the book that there are 130 million Americans approximately who live on shorelines in, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, in, in the country and lots of a lot of people on, who won't have a place to live. Uh, I don't know about the time frame on that, but whatever the time frame is, that, that's not good news. No, it's not, you know, and and the, the way it's going to happen, it's not all going to happen at once. Suddenly, it's going to be this trickle effect. But what it's going to be is, you know, it's going to be things that are reflected in your property values and your insurance, right? You know, people are people are going to move uh, and it's because they're insured and they're not going to say, oh, I'm moving because of climate change, because people, you know, when they make a decision to move, there might be four or five factors, right? Maybe more. Uh, but they're going to be things like, oh, well, the economy's not doing so well here. Or um, uh, I just can't take another storm. I know after Hurricane Ida, a friend of mine moved uh, fr from New Orleans to Washington, D.C. And she said, you know, there were a lot of factors, she says, but after that storm, that was just the last straw for me. You know, that was that was it. Um, or, or people's, uh, you know, property's going to, uh, property values are going to change dramatically. And you'll look back and you'll say, oh, that was because of climate, right? Or whatever. But um, it, when it's happening all around you, it's sometimes it's hard to attribute it to any particular thing. So in a hypothetical world, I'm thinking now of people across the board who some of whom think, yes, we could still do something. Yeah. People who are, who think about deep adaptation, say it's too late. Uh, you obviously don't think it's too late. So here's a hypothetical world question. In this hypothetical world, if everybody who listens to this podcast, and I have no idea how many people that will be, but it goes all over the world, except to North Korea. If everybody who listens 
is involved in a climate project and they tell one other person and they do their own climate project, could that make a difference? I know you don't know the numbers I'm talking yeah, about. No, it could make it could make a huge difference. Um, the, the, the key, and I'm not just saying, oh, you know, on your own, you can you, you can change the world, but but with other people, you can. And, and it has to do with, with working in, sometimes it's working in social groups and church groups and uh, in, in, in other religiously affiliated groups or um, in educational institutions. But political action is really, really important. And I, I don't want to minimize that. I mean, the way that you vote matters an enormous amount. Um, and, and not just for president, but, you know, for local local people in your community, uh, because uh, land use is one of the largest leverage points um, for building climate resilience. And land use is notoriously local in the United States. Right. You can you can change a decision in land use just by showing up to to the right meeting and giving the right speech. <laughs> and um and, and the same with your uh, public utility commissions. And if you don't know what a public utility commission is, you need to Google it and find out. It's the, it's a, it's the com commission in your state which, which regulates how your electricity is used and, and, and how much re renewable energy goes into your electric grid and how reliable it is in terms of storms and things. A lot of people don't know who's on that commission, but a lot of times they're voted in or they're appointed by people you vote for and they have open meetings. And, and so um, I'm all about getting politically involved in, in, in things. Uh, but the key is you have to understand how your political involvement works and where your leverage points are. The answer, yes, find something. It's the same thing I said earlier, find out something you're interested in and work it. And uh, and 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 find out who has the power to affect the change that you're interested in. It might be uh, somebody in, in a company. It might be somebody in politics. Uh, it might be your next door neighbor. I don't know. But that's that's what you you know, uh, that's what you need. So I'd like to ask a question. We've covered parts of it already, but it's so important. So I'm going to ask you about the mechanism again. Now you say in your book that disaster aid goes to white people more than black and brown people. I'm interested in the mechanism. So for example, there's a disaster. It could be a hurricane, a, a, a bad tornado. You understand that disaster aid money is available. Then what happens? Well, I'll give you a very quick example. Uh, maybe that came out of Hurricane Katrina uh, that, that I think that I think helps. So after Hurricane Katrina, a lot of people lost their homes. Obviously, uh, a lot of people were homeless because of uh, lots of issues. And 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 so what what happened in that situation is what happens across the country in a number of situations is the federal government there, there there's a there's an aid package that congress eventually passed and so all of this money became available and a lot of it went to individual states including of course the state of louisiana and then the state says well okay we have a plan to distribute this money and the and the idea behind it is that the locals know best how to spend it right which is not a bad idea okay um uh, but so we had these programs and uh, the money went to all kinds of things, including, you know, compensating people uh, who had lost their homes if they owned them. 
um, there were also packages to help renters, but the packages to help renters were not um, gener as generous, right? And we have a lot of renters, as you might imagine, in a city like New Orleans, right? Um, now, some of that money went to landlords, which sounds good because they own the properties that the renters live in. Uh, but sometimes uh, those landlords could make decisions um, that were not in their previous renters' interests, right? So that was another issue. But here's the thing, and, and, and maybe this will be good for, for listeners, just to understand how something that didn't intend to have racialized impact did. Um, one of the decisions that was made was to say, well, we, we can't rebuild your home. We don't have enough money for that. But what we'll do is we'll give you a certain amount of money that's based on the pre-storm value of your house, all right? And so they did that, right? And so homeowners all got money. Now, one story is that some homeowners didn't have enough money to add to that to rebuild their homes. They 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 had money, but they didn't have any, you know, they didn't have enough to do what they needed to do. Um, but the bigger problem was that in New Orleans, which, you know, was racially segregated in the way that most cities in the United States are, um, the same house, you know, the same size of house, the same quality of house in a white neighborhood has a higher land value than, than, than that house in a Latino neighborhood or a black neighborhood. And so what that meant is that you would get a different amount of money depending on whether you lived in a, in a, in a neighborhood that was black or that was white. Not because that was written into it anyway, only because the the housing values already reflected that, and uh, and so there actually was a lawsuit uh, that the city lost uh, after Hurricane Katrina. And when they when they developed the programs in New Jersey and New York after Hurricane Sandy, they specifically took that kind of calculation out of the formula. Um, it was because they had learned, right? So this is good. It's a good story. We learned something about, you know, the unintentional consequences of not planning uh, in the right way. But there are just a number of things. If you just think to yourself, okay, who rents, who owns? Um, if I get, if somebody gives me, um, you know, $50,000 and says, uh, if you can find another 20, you'll be able to elevate your house. Right. So am I going to be able to find the other 20 or am I not going to be able to find the other 20? Right. And, and that's the difference of having your house elevated and, then, and not having your house out elevated. Um, and so we actually find you would be surprised, maybe, but there are a number of situations where government largesse, they provide money. But if you, you don't have the matching funds, it's it, it doesn't go that far. Right. And then we say, well, then why didn't they elevate their home and they didn't do what they were supposed to and all of that? And and, and it's a more complicated story. Well, thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, a very complicated story. I have one more question and then I'll um, let you tell our listeners what else is really important about your book. Again, we could we could spend a course. <laughs> but since we have a few minutes now, um, let me ask one more question. Building climate resilience and managing voluntary retreat is more than a smart choice. It's a moral duty. Two questions, actually. What, what do you mean by managing voluntary retreat? That's a really difficult issue. So um, 
we are apt we absolutely have places where people are going to have to move away from um and they're either going to do it on their own in a haphazard way um with a lot of human agony associated with it um or ideally we would have programs developed to keep people informed about the risks that they are taking and give them um uh, give them uh, the support they need to make decisions and to be able to realize in some way what those decisions, whether that's being able to move somewhere else or or, or whatever. Uh, what I do feel really strongly about is you just can't tell a community that it's got to move or that it's going to stay. Um, you have to you have to create some kind of agency in a choice like that. Um, communities in southern Louisiana, the people that are trickling away. A lot of it's generational. You know, I talk to older people uh, in some parts of Louisiana who say, you know, if, if they take away the grid and the road, I'll just live in my boat. Right. Uh, and that's that's a choice. And I'm, you know, uh, so so, you know, what you often see when communities relocate is that uh, the older generation stay. And the younger people come back and visit, and it might take a generation or two actually for a community to completely move in that way. That's just how people are, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, but I think that it's it's important to respect that and to understand why it happens that way. Um, it is a moral choice I, because it, it is not acceptable, I think, to create systems that encourage people to stay places where they shouldn't. Um, and, uh, or, or, you know, for instance, if we were just to jack up insurance rates, even on poorer people and say, oh, well, now you have a price signal. Now, you know, you live in a floodplain. Well, they knew they lived in a floodplain before they just don't have any options. And so now what they're going to do is just not have insurance. Right. Uh, uh, and so that's not, that's not a, at least to me, an, an ethical way of, of doing things. I mean, you do want to hold people responsible for decisions they make, but they also have to have information and they have to have the means to do something different. Tell me, tell us a little bit about it's a moral duty. It's more than a smart choice. It's a moral duty. Uh, oh, resilient. Well, yeah, the moral duty part is that, um, and I think if I remember right, that was sort of in a response the, the, when I was talking about people saying, uh, well, we should just reduce carbon pollution, right? Um, reducing carbon pollution doesn't help people who are hurting right now, or that are going to hurt in the next in, in the next 30 years. Um, a, a lot of poverty, a lot of homelessness, uh, a, a, a lot of um, lost jobs, lost labor is 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 going to happen because of climate change. It's already happening. If you look at droughts in agrarian in the agrarian parts of California and so on, um, people have lost all kinds of jobs. Um, and so, it's not a moral act to ignore that. Uh, it's immoral to ignore that. Uh, if particularly if you have the mean, I'm talking about a country now or a society, particularly if you have the means to understand what is happening and the means to do something about it. Uh, and I, I say the same actually about myself, right? You know, people say, oh, you're an optimist. I'm like, I don't know if I'm an optimist, but I am a hopeful person. And, and, and what that means is as long as there is a way, uh, you know, a plausible way to make things better uh, for my kids, uh, for myself, uh, for other people, um, then it's my job to work 
for that. That is my, I, I believe it for myself, that that's my moral duty is to, um, it, it is to use my hope to support action. Uh, and, uh, and I think that we, you know, it's helpful maybe to see we, we have a duty, you know, it's a call and, and we need to answer it. And, and that builds some responsibility and purpose in, in your life, I think. Um, and so at least that's, that's how I see it. And that's what keeps me, that's what keeps me going. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a very important point. I mean, if people do have the means, if countries do have the means, they should do something about it. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that I've missed? Uh, well, I've missed. Oh, oh, I just, oh, I, I just I have really enjoyed like this it. conversation. Um, and I hope people right. enjoy the book. Uh, I, I want, I, I wrote the book to be accessible, to tell stories, uh, hoping that people could see themselves in some of the locations in this book, whether it's, uh, you know, the Washington State area, or whether it's the bayous in New Orleans or outside of New Orleans, or whether it's uh, the, the the coral reefs in the Keys. Um, and I wanted people to be able to meet interesting people along the way. And I've just learned an enormous amount um, working on this. And um, I'm just, you know, happy, happy to be in the discussion today. Well, you succeeded in making very, it making it very accessible to people. Um, is is there a way people could reach you? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, so so one way uh, you can reach, actually the, the easiest way is just on my website, which is www.robvercik.org. Uh, uh, or I'm sorry, .com. Ooh, I should have said it right. So robvercik.com. Uh, and uh, there's uh, you can follow me on social media. You can email me from there. Um, anything you want, robvercik.com. Okay, that sounds great. Well, thank you very much. And perhaps we can talk again sometime. Okay, well, I hope so. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.